Welcome to episode 281 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Guess what? You don't have to wonder if your offer will be a success. After all, the biggest question when you're taking your offer to market, whether it's a book, a course, consulting, coaching, or anything else, is not whether you have a great idea. You know you have a great idea. No, the biggest questions are the ones sitting in the back of your mind. Will anyone actually buy this? How do I know if what I'm selling is what people want? How do I build an audience of enthusiastic endorsers and fans? What if I told you that you already have the answer to all those questions? You just haven't tapped into the resource that will unlock them for you. Can you believe that all you have to do to get the answers you need is ask? Here's a big hint. It's your list. No, not just the folks in your email list. Think about all the people you already know. The list of people in your social networks, your professional associations, your personal circle, the list of folks who love you and trust you, have problems to solve, and will tell you exactly what they need and how you and your offer can help them. And getting on the path to those answers can be as easy as joining a group of like-minded individuals for a two-hour mastermind focused on how you can create this list, reconnect with those folks, and not just find the answers you're looking for, but build a network that will be ecstatic to help you promote your offer once it's out. Are you ready to get started? This June, I would love for you to join me and other folks on the same entrepreneurial path for one of six pop-up Wake Up Your Network Mastermind sessions. We'll cover my proven method that I and dozens of others I've helped have successfully used on how to discover likely prospects and referral partners, how to reach out to them, and how to structure and maximize those research calls. In just two hours, you will get the support you need to build and connect with your likely prospect list in the best, most efficient way. You'll also meet and support other smart, committed, and abundant-minded entrepreneurs who are passionate about sharing their gift and creating value in all that they do. The cost is just $200 for a one-time, two-hour mastermind session. To help you make the mastermind as powerful as possible for you, you're required to make progress on the assigned pre-work in the Wake Up Your Network workbook. You'll receive additional resources in the Big Results Toolkit, which will help you take action on what you learn in this pop-up mastermind. Go to robbysamuels.com forward slash pop-up app. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash P-O-P-U-P-A-P-P by Monday, May 23rd to fill out the application to ensure we can hyper-focus on your specific questions and goals, each session is capped at 12 participants. Only six sessions will be held this summer. Applications will be reviewed and accepted on a rolling basis. Apply quickly to be able to select your one-time, two-hour session while all dates are still available. Please join us. We'd love to be the next step in your entrepreneurial journey. Fill out the application at robbysamuels.com forward slash pop up app by Monday, May 23rd. 
Applications are accepted on a rolling basis while space is available. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest is inspired by seeing others harness what makes them extraordinary as human beings. He teaches people how to navigate the challenge of leadership. He draws on his 25-year career in the Royal Air Force and over 14 years of partnering with businesses around the world. He has worked in a wide range of sectors, including aviation, oil and gas, construction, mining, banking, television, film, and media. Today, he's a keynote speaker and facilitator presenting around the world and virtually. He co-authored his first book, Find Your Why, with Simon Sinek and David Mead. Published in September 2017, it has been translated into more than 25 languages and has sold over 420,000 copies. He was a founding igniter at Simon Sinek, Inc., working with Simon for over seven years. His latest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control, delivers the message that leadership is about lifting people up and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. Please join me in welcoming Peter Docker. Hello, Robbie. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for that intro. Um, welcome to be here. And Peter, thank you so much for joining us from your place in Oxford, UK. Thrilled to have you. So as we were talking about before hitting record, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, actually, I think you touched on part of what I'd use in my definition, right? The, the start in the intro there, Robbie, you know, I define leadership as the, the art and the ability of lifting up others. So when the time is right, they can take the lead. Because, you know, in life, whatever we're at work on, uh, if we're leading a team or an organization, chances are it's important to us uh, at some level or another. So it, it makes sense that we want to develop people who can carry on, carry forward those things that are deeply important to us when we've taken a step back. So that's my definition of, of leadership. And uh, when did I first discover that I could lead? Do you know, that's a really interesting question because I've never thought about it like that. I joined the Royal Air Force uh, when I was in my early 20s, about 20 years old. And of course, I went into a lot of training, officer training. I graduated as an officer and became a pilot. And I, I think leadership is bizarrely not something that I, I thought actively about. You know, it's about working together to get a mission done to... Uh, achieve things sometimes that we thought might not be possible, but going for it anyway and prevailing. So, yeah, along the way, you had to lead. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there was any specific points where I thought, hmm, I, I can be a leader here. It was just one of those things that I ended up doing and made lots of mistakes along the way and hopefully getting better. <laughs> when, when you were in the Air Force, did people sort of gravitate to you or, or did you find yourself being, um, you know, voluntold to take on uh, certain roles because yeah. maybe someone else saw you as having that potential? Uh, yes. I, I mean, there's, when you're selected uh, in the Royal Air Force to become an officer, you go through quite a detailed selection process. So as part of that, they're looking at your leadership potential not only to lead others, but importantly, to lead yourself. Because I, I think it's a journey that we all go through learning to lead ourselves. And that's critical if you want to learn to lead others better too. And so 
my latest book you, you kind of mentioned in the intro, Leading from the Jump Seat, it starts with a big chunk on learning how to lead yourself better, to figure out what's deeply important to you. Because when you can do that, they, those things, they act as a, a guide, a handrail when you step forward into the unknown, which again is partly what leadership is about. I really appreciate that your definition of leadership has uh, sort of built in the idea that you may not be the one there to lead in the future. Like you, you, you might, for one reason or another, have to hand the reins over. And so it's about developing the people around you to take up that role, um, both with their own self-leadership in the moment. You know, what do you do when no one's looking? But also being able to inspire others to take organized effort and action together. And I think a lot of times we think of leaders, it's more about the person who finally achieved that role and clings to it dearly. Um, so I find that really interesting that you've yeah, kind well, of built that in. Um, spoiler alert, we all give up control. We all do. It is inevitable. If you are the CEO of a big company, you will retire. If you're leading a team, chances are you will move on to another team. If you're a parent, which, by the way, is a big leadership challenge, speaking as one, eventually your children will grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. And if you think none of those examples apply to you, at the end of the day, we'll end up on the other side of the grass. Yeah? And that's when we release ultimate control. Yeah? So it is inevitable. Leading from the jump seat is all about embracing that inevitability. Because if we leave, lead from the perspective of empowering our people, equipping them, so when the time is right, they can step up and take the lead. It turns out that that creates some fantastic opportunities right, in, right now, uh, in the here and now. So, yeah, handing over control is a key part of leadership for me. Um, because, you, you know, <laughs> you get a hand over control sometimes. I want to dig in a little bit, Peter, and see your background because, you know, here you are fully formed, you this professional accolades, years experience, you know, it, you didn't, you didn't arrive on, on the earth this way. And yet it's really hard sometimes for us to look at people who are well, you know, very accomplished and, and well-established and respected for us to understand that journey. So I want you to take us back and I'm going to have you wind back further than 20 years old because 20 years old, yes, pivotal moment choosing to go into the air force, but what were you like as a kid? What, you know, the playground. Did you organize kids? Were you watching what was going on? Did you have teachers that sought you out for different opportunities? Did you run for office? Like, who were you back then in those in those earlier formative years? Well, th this is ancient history we're talking about now, Robbie. You know, I'm 59 years old for heaven's sake. So it's going back a bit. Um, before I dive into that, I must say, whenever I hear anyone. Um, give the introduction like you've given, which hits all, a lot of high points in my life. I, I sometimes sit back and listen in, in disbelief, you know, thinking, really, was that me? Um, and, and, of course, there was a lot of struggle along the way, uh, a lot of falling down, getting up again, uh, a lot of crossroads in my life, like there are for, for all of us. And what defines us is the, the choices that we make at those crossroads. But going all the way back to answer your question, what, what was I like as a kid? 
um, sometimes I feel ill-equipped to answer a question like that. <laughs> you know, ask other people. Actually, well, here's the thing. I was talking earlier on today to a friend of mine that I met when I was at school, and we are still friends to this day. We work together. <clears throat> you know, we play together, in effect. Um, our, our families are, are great friends with one another. So uh, I, I must have been okay as a, a kid, but I wasn't what I would call, if you like, gregarious or outgoing particularly. I, I, was, I was quite introverted, really. Um, you know, I spend my life these days up on a stage, uh, sometimes with very large audiences. In Sydney a few years ago, I had an audience of just under 3,000 people. And it was just me on a stage with a flip chart for four hours, taking them through ideas and helping them to help one another from different businesses, you know. But that takes a lot of energy from me because I'm not naturally the sort of outgoing party sort of chap, you know. I think that was exactly the same when I was young. Um, uh, I, I was, I might think I was friendly, but I wasn't uh, in the center of things all the time. Uh, I wasn't necessarily the person that you would point to as um, the charismatic leader. Um, far from it. You know, if there's someone who comes along that uh, is more buoyant and outspoken and loud, I'll probably take a step back, you know, yeah. let them get on with it, uh, support them, but let them get on with it. So, what I'm trying to say is that. I, I don't think I, I was what you might consider to be the, the typical leader. Um, but I don't think there are many typical leaders. People who I think are great leaders are those who learn what it is that is deeply important to them, what they stand for, not what they take positions against, what they stand for. And they source themselves from a place of love, actually, not fear. You know, love and fear are the only two things that drive us forward. Um, but one, love is so much more powerful than fear. And love includes knowing yourself, what you stand for, and learning to, to lead from that place, to be yourself, rather than trying to emulate others. And, you know, in my time, I tried to uh, be someone else. When I took over a squadron, which is a, a, a fantastic thing to do in the Royal Air Force, you know, a squadron is the fighting force of the Royal Air Force. It's a great honour to take over those, uh, a squadron. The one I took over was formed in 1917 with a lot of very distinguished looking people leading it. And then there was me. And I looked at my immediate predecessor, a guy called Ian. I thought, what a fantastic, charismatic leader he's been. And well, I've got to be like that. But of course, that wasn't who I was. It's not who I am, you know. Um, as someone once said, be yourself because everyone else is taken. So I think when I go all the way back to being young as a kid, like the rest of us, uh, it was very much about figuring out what's deeply important to me, uh, learning from those around me, uh, around me. and um, through life, learning how to bring that unashamedly to the fore and lead my own life on that basis, but also use it as a basis on which to lead others too. I really appreciate these distinctions you're making about how, you know, particularly early on in life, when we think of leaders or if we think of people we thought of as leaders, even from earlier in our life, it's usually that charismatic stereotype. 
Um, but you know, you you sort of learn to embody leadership in your own way, and it's much more powerful than when you're trying to play a role that doesn't fit. Um, it's it's hard to lead with uh, integrity if you're playing if you know you're playing the role, um, and others might find you out. I'm curious if there was anyone early on in your life that you did look up to, you know, maybe you didn't use the word leader, but who, who are the big influences in your life? Well, I, I, early on, and this is going back into the sixties, I was born in 19, 1963, good heavens, long time ago, uh, a different age, literally. And uh, at the age of five, I found myself with a, a stepfather. Um, and, uh, 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 another stepfather when I was around about 12, 13. And they were each very different. And by the way, my mother was a constant presence through all of this. Um, both my stepfathers were, were very different, but I, I learned an enormous amount from them. And I was fortunate as well during my childhood growing up to have a, a friendship with two remarkable people who are married, Muriel and Frank, and they were my parents' generation. Um, and they were both disabled. Um, Muriel was, uh, well, she, she had polio when she was 16. She was bedridden. And her husband, Frank, uh, during the Second World War, he was fighting in the, the jungles and developed a very bad arthritis, so it was difficult for him to walk. But these two people were absolute rocks, and their character I mean, I'm just thinking of Muriel now. To be with her, to talk with her, although she was in constant pain, you would never realise it. And just the, the love for people that came from her, the compassion, the humour, was an absolute inspiration. And likewise, Frank, although he had difficulty getting around, he was such a powerful personality. Um, he had great charisma, um, but in a way that totally inspired you and a uh, remarkable character. And to, together, they were a huge influence on my early life. I think how I'd characterize that now was to overcome adversity, to see the world as a place of possibility and opportunity rather than a place of scarcity, and just go for it. Thank you for bringing their memories into this. I mean, just to have that kind of influence in your life at those formative years, um, particularly such different experiences than one you were having yourself and to have these different stepfathers kind of relating to you and sharing their wisdom. And you're a sponge at that age. So you're like, you know, whether you know it or not, you're soaking in, this is how the world works. This is what's expected of me, you know, that kind of thing. Now, you know, at 20, you ended up um, going into the, the Royal Air Force, but I'm curious if that was a, a planned trajectory. Did you come from a family that had done that? Or was there another plan that you sort of had in place before heading into this career path? There was another plan. When I went to university, I went to study a double degree in computing and electronic engineering. And this was in uh, 1981. Uh, so computing was really starting to come to the fore. And I knew absolutely nothing about those subjects. I had no background in them whatsoever. And I struggled to find a university or college that would take me. The reason I chose those subjects was because at the time, my, my mother and my stepfather, they'd both lost their jobs. 
they were very financially hard up. And I felt that by going to university to study those subjects, I would have a really good chance of getting a well-paid job where not only would I not be a burden on them financially, I would also be in a position to help them financially. So that's what drove me to take those subjects. But here's the thing. Halfway through my course, it was 1982, and something else happened. Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic. Now, the Falkland Islands group was very small islands off the tip of Argentina, but historically, they've been a British territory. And the people on the island consider themselves very much to be British. Uh, and yet, at the time, Argentina decided to invade to claim the, the islands for themselves. Now, I remember not knowing much about the politics whatsoever, but that was not the important thing. What really incensed me was that someone was imposing their will on others, people who were helpless to defend themselves. So at that point, that was a crossroads. I chose to leave university in the middle of my degree and join the Royal Air Force to become a pilot because I'd had some association with the, the Air Force uh, through youth organizations. And I felt that by joining the Royal Air Force, I would be able to become part of a team who in future would be able to help other people in similar sorts of situations. So that was a crossroads and it, it changed my life. Now, I, I mentioned um, earlier on, you know, defining ourselves, what's deeply important to us. That moment where I left university to join the Royal Air Force was prompted by something which now I define as the, the notion of mutual respect. That is a deeply held non-negotiable for me. That is something that feeds the energy deep inside for me to move forward, even into the unknown. Equally, when I chose the course I did originally to go to university, it, it defines something else which is deeply important to me, which is not being a burden on others and being in a position to help others. Um, so these things turn into stands, stands for something I believe in. And then when we put those stands into action, they become commitments. And we will follow through and it will help us. Those stands help us to, to step forward, even when we're unsure, even when we're uncertain. So, yeah, it wasn't always destined that I joined the Royal Air Force. And that's the story behind it. And such great, two great examples of leadership that you um, sort of embodied when you were faced with these choices. Um, you know, your family did not implore you to take on a, a career that would lead to better financial outcomes. You, you were leading yourself to do that. And when you saw what was unfolding on this, you know, global scale, you know, like what countries are, you know, like the, the, the uh, indignity and an unjustness of that to you, like meant something about you having to take action again, like leading self. So here you are, like not even, you know, out of your, barely out of your teens and clearly the upbringing that you'd had to that point was the backdrop to how you were making these decisions about your own life um, with, of course, hopefully the support of others. So, it, you know, it, no one's predestined. You didn't know you were going to head into this Air Force, but you also did take some youth group stuff with it, right? So you, you, you sort of had these different opportunities. 
Yes. Yeah, I, I knew what the Air Force was about. The, in the mm. UK, there is an organization called the Air Training Corps, which isn't part of the Royal Air Force, but it, it's for um, young people from the age of uh, 12, 13, up to 18. And it introduces them to uh, the, the Royal Air Force and there's the opportunity to, to fly um, and do lots of other activities. And, of mm. course, the hope is that some of those young yeah. people will go on to join Royal Air Force. So I, I had experience um, of it, so I, I knew it was going to be a, a pretty good fit. And uh, I'm glad I made that that choice. And just you know, following on the mutual respect, I think that that stand that I have is further embodied or strengthened because of my experience since I've visited 93 countries so far and met people of so many different cultures, religions, backgrounds, perspectives on life, perspectives on who they are. And that for me is a joy. And the reason it's a joy is regardless of culture, religion, background, nationality, language, I know I've seen that what brings us together is so much more than what keeps us apart. And that for me is a great message of hope particularly with the troubles that we see in the world. You know, it's, uh, it's a great message of hope. Um, we all tend to strive towards the same things in life, and we all tend to source ourselves from uh, a place of love and possibility rather than scarcity and fear. Uh, and that gives me hope. I'm curious, as you entered into this next sort of phase of your career, um, how soon after joining did you realize you were going to stay in? Like, past that initial sign up, you know, like so many opportunities obviously become yeah. available to you once you're in, but when you first sign, did you know you were signing with that intention or did that sort of unfold for you? Um, well, it was not really something I considered because when I signed um, to join the Royal Air Force, it was for a period of 16 years or until I reached the age of 38, whichever was the later point. For me, that was the age of 38. But, you know, that was okay because, in my mind, because I was receiving some of the best flying training available in the world for free. I was part of an organization that I believed in. And I had the opportunity to, um, well, I, I flew large passenger jets and later on air refueling aircraft. But in the process, I flew around the world, literally flying myself. Um, to Hong Kong, to Australia, Africa, wherever, America, of course. Uh, at the age of 25, I was selected as one of the pilots to fly our prime minister around. At the age of 25, for heaven's sakes. You know, so the, the, the notion of signing on for a long period, uh, the downside didn't really occur to me because actually, of course, there's a good upside too which is unless you really make a mess of things, you've got a job for at least that period. And if you do really well, um, then chances are you'll be invited to, to stay longer, which is, which is what happened to me. So I didn't see it as a downside signing up. I, I thought, well, we're going to make a career of this. Really interesting. I wonder how our lives would be if we approached opportunities with that level of certainty and commitment from both sides ourselves and the people who are offering it to us and what we would pour ourselves into um, and what results could come if we didn't just sort of hedge our bets when we were doing things and thinking about how the turnover rate has just amplified around the world. 
um, for people in different kind of roles. As you did kind of graduate out of that experience, was entrepreneurship a clear next step for you? Did you know people who were doing this or was there some sort of segue that you had to transition through? Well, I, I spent the best part of 25 years in the Royal Air Force. So um, then, you know, I, I thought there was more I could do. So I, I left and joined a consultancy. So I wasn't an entrepreneur at that, that stage. I was part of a consultancy, which had got nothing to do with the military or flying, but had everything to do with people. And we worked in high-risk uh, industries where people tended to get killed or injured through accidents. And we helped create cultures where everyone went home safe. So that took me to Africa again, to the Middle East, to Kazakhstan and various places. But again, after three years, I thought there's more I, I can do. And that's when uh, I left to um, uh, set up on my own. And I uh, uh, started working with Simon Sinek and did so for about seven or eight years. But actually, you know what, Robbie, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, no, it started earlier than that. Because even in my early days, there was a bit of an entrepreneurial thread going through my um, uh, through who I was. I remember when I, I was an early adopter of computers, PCs. And I remember getting this Amstrad computer at the time. And equally, I was an early adopter of getting uh, a laser printer when they first became available for home use. And so I set up a business. I was still in the Air Force, but it was perfectly fine as long as it didn't interfere with your main duties. I set up a business um, printing letterheads, personalized stationery for people. And, uh, you know, got a reasonable income from that, actually. And it was good fun. So there was always that, um, uh, yeah, running through my veins, I guess, of something that I could create, something I could do. Uh, and it was later where it became, well, the foundation of um, the work I, I do now. And the, the first company I, I set up um, was uh, in 2007 and still going strong. And uh, uh, I, I used the company for the vehicle for the speaking and workshops I do. But last year I set up another company, which was Why Not Press? It is Why Not Press. And it's a publishing company because... Uh, everything I've written about in my book, Lean from the Jump Seat, of lifting, up, lifting people up and helping them to lead, producing that book was an exercise in everything that I've written about. And in order to do that, I created the company Why Not Press Limited um, to publish this book and um, get agreements with printers and distributors in the States and in the UK and elsewhere. And, and that's been a, a, a big challenge, but an enjoyable challenge too. So, yeah, the entrepreneurial thing. Now, because of your question, it's made me think it, it's been part of me for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting how wherever we are, we've always been, you know, like like kind of who you are today, like these little threads that in retrospect, it always makes more sense, but that you have that instinct to to take these resources and you know, build this little side hustle while you had getting full employment, you weren't looking to build anything big, but here you are, you know, you, you land in a consultancy, which is a, you know, uh, someone else sort of creating the environment for you and you're just coming to deliver. Um, you, and you mentioned Simon Sinek. So this is really interesting because it sounds like you kind of met him before we all met him. Um, is, is my, am I right in that? Or like how, how well known was he at the time that you 
and he were starting to first connect and collaborate? So the, this was um, about 2010. So at that stage, Simon's TED talk of Start With Why had gone, gone viral. Mm. Um, and, and that's where I first saw him. So it was fairly early days. There, there was um, myself and uh, my dear friend now, David Mead, um, and uh, uh, another person, Kim, who uh, were the, the small team, and then Monique as well. So, yeah, it was fairly early days, I guess, uh, but it's all relative. He was already very well known. Um, and so, yes, I remember meeting Simon for the first time. He was, he was coming through London, and I invited him for, for breakfast because that was the only time he had at the Royal Air Force Club, which sounds very grand, doesn't it? But it and it is quite grand, actually. It's, uh, it's in the centre of London in Piccadilly. And we chatted away over breakfast for best part of an hour, and then he had to go. And I remember as he said our goodbyes, um, well, it was the start of a relationship where he extended a huge amount of trust, in fact, when he asked me to help take his message, this was about six months later, help me take his message around the world, um, which was a remarkable invitation, bearing in mind uh, he was so well-known at that stage even, and uh, actually he'd never heard me speak either, but he, he said it just felt right. So, yeah, I will forever remember that. Um, and as say, uh, stayed uh, with uh, supporting Simon for about seven or eight years until about a couple of years ago when David Mead and I stepped away to develop our own work. So, yeah, it's been a journey. I'm curious how you got on his radar to even invite him for breakfast since he was so well known at the time. <laughs> well, I, I sent a, a, an email. Uh, to, I think it was just the address on the website, I, I think. And at the time, David Mead was working part-time answering the emails. And, you know, he, he got a lot each day uh, would come through. And I remember him, David saying to me, he said, um, this is a year or two later, he said, when yours came in, he said, I, I don't know what it was about it, but there was something a bit different about it. And he said, I, I just felt that I would pass it up to, to Kim, who was sort of chief of staff of Simon at the time, and, and get a conversation going and see where it led. So um, that's what happened. And before you ask, Robbie, I can't remember what I put in the email. I can't even find that email. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what it was I, I said, but I believe it was just something along the lines of, you know, I, I believe what you, you believe. And I, I was being absolutely genuine. I was just sharing how I felt about um, uh, the work you were sharing with the world. So, yeah, that's how it started. I mean, it's always remarkable because I think sometimes when we see a content creator put something amazing out into the world um, that we're moved by or impacted by in a positive way, we might hesitate to even tell them, right? So there's there's the thinking about it and not doing it. So then you, you thought about it and decided to take some action, not knowing what the results were. And also it didn't sound like you had a particular ask. You were just genuinely being appreciative and sort of offering that into the universe and to him to let them know 
And I think a lot of people, when someone hits a big screen in a big way, like all clamor to get a little piece of the action, right? So that's it, it the yeah. the messaging could feel a little different than you, which was more like, I, you know, I really want to support what you're doing. Um, I wish you could find that original email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it's going back a while now, but uh, yeah, I, I think that that extends more broadly. You know, if you, you show up to, to, to give and see what you can offer that person rather than what you can get from them. Um, it was on Alan Grant, isn't it? Who's done written the book, give and take mm-hmm. and uh, some very good lessons in there. I think particularly around networking, connecting with people. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about Bob Berg yeah, as well. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. very Adam Grant, Bob Berg. Like, I mean, this is the, this is that in action. Um, and then, you know, you show up and you do good work. The fact that he was encouraging you to take his message on the road, having not seen you speak is also quite remarkable. Um, but well, it is. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's a, a lesson for, for me that I've retained, which is, uh, you know, the, the aspect of trust. And um, I, I think when you're meeting, talking, working with people, uh, at some, some level you need to extend trust, and that, that's a, a choice that you make, but trust tends to beget trust. Um, it really does. I, I think the challenge is that we remember the times when it doesn't quite go right, you know, but 99% of the time, trust begets trust and builds great relationships. Well, we've just sort of talking a little bit about networking. Um, I actually want to kind of reframe this conversation a little more on this then, because you have met <laughs> just so many people in your career in many different industries, um, doing lots of different kinds of work. and you're a person who, who really values connection. So I'm curious, you know, you've got that inner circle of people that, you know, you're going to stay in touch with, and then you've got sort of that second and third layer or tear out the people that you might see once a year at a conference or maybe every, you know, maybe five years ago, you work together. Uh, these are people you'd like, I just want to preference with that. These are people that you would enjoy seeing again. Um, how do you think about nurturing those kinds of connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, or practices that help you, you know, nurture, sustain connections and stay top of mind? Again, your question is going to be thinking, Robbie, because I, I, I wouldn't naturally consider myself, I wouldn't consider myself a, a natural networker uh, uh, as such. I just talk to people and I'm curious, you know, uh, about them and what's going on. I, I think in terms of staying in touch with people, uh, I, I like to build relationships. So in very general terms, you know, some people like to have um, a breadth of relationships, you know, many, many, many people, but the relationship with each of them is not particularly deep. Uh, I fall into the other bucket, which is where I have a few um, people who are, are very close and that I like one-to-one conversations like we're having now. Um, I much prefer that than being in a room full of people where it's very noisy and it's difficult to have a meaningful conversation with someone. It's all very surface level. In terms of things that I do to stay in touch, I, I quite often just send, if I haven't seen someone for a while, I might just send them a text message and say, hey, thinking of you. Um, or how's this going? Uh, what's happening about this aspect of your life? Um, 
But importantly, it doesn't come from a place of, oh, I've got to stay in touch with those people. It comes from a genuine place of, of care and concern for that person. You know? And even in a short text, I think that uh, sentiment can come across. It really can. So, yeah, often I think in life, well, always in life, in my experience, um, if we think of the notion that most of us, what we do in life, we would like it to be significant. Yeah, we want to make a difference, whatever that looks like for us. Um, and often we focus on the headlines. You know, a bit like when you you gave that introduction, you understandably focus on the, the headlines of things that I've done. But actually, I think life is much more about the small things. And in terms of people, uh, whether we're leading them or staying connected with them, it's those often fleeting moments where we have that one-to-one -one connection. If you're in a leadership role and you've got a big team, it's pausing as you pass someone in a corridor and checking in, you know, is everything good with you? Is there anything that you need? How's things at home? You know, whatever is appropriate in that organization. Um, and often those moments, you will forget about them instantly, most probably. But just every so often, the other person, it will have an impact on them that will last for the rest of their lives. And in my book, Lean from the Jump Seat, there's a lot of stories to illustrate that point, both when it's been a fleeting moment that has deeply affected me and a fleeting moment with someone else that I've subsequently deeply affected them. But at the time, you know, I just, it, it was just a passing moment for me. So yeah, in terms of staying in touch, don't think about the big things. It's the little things. And often that can be just a genuine short message by text or whatever it is to check in with people. I really appreciate the idea that we, we don't always know the significance of the moments that we're having with people when there are these quick check-ins, um, but people want to be seen. And that is, that is what we're able to do for other people. We're, we're able to see them, witness what their lives are like beyond the role they play in our organization. We can recognize that they have other factors, family or other things that might be uh, part of their struggles day to day that we can celebrate uh, and witness to. So um, thank you for the reminder. I've, I've stepped up my game on this myself recently. I started collecting people's mailing addresses. And for a little while, I didn't actually have an intention around it. It started with collecting them for my podcast guests. And then eventually I was like, well, I want to be a person who sends cards because I love getting cards. And in the last two years, the pandemic, I've received more packages and more cards than, than the five years prior. Like, it feels like a lot of people have started doing that and I, you know, it's just fun. So now I have some systems in place so that if I notice, like the other day, I sent three welcome home cards, three different people announced on Facebook that they bought a new home. So I asked, what's your new address? Send them a welcome home card, you know, because when I moved into a new home, someone sent me something that recognized that. And it just felt really good, like people noticing things. So um, yeah. we don't know. Actually, so, yeah. Can, can I build on that? Because you touched Please. on a really important point, Robbie. Um, there's this notion of belonging. Uh, in my book, it's the, the third section of the book. It, it's the third practice of jump seat leadership. And 
as human beings, we all crave a sense of belonging. We might not put in so many words, but we do. We want to feel that we belong in our group of friends. We want to feel that we belong at work. We want to feel that we belong in our neighborhood. We are pack animals, if you like. We want to sense this belonging. So when you flip that around, when we're talking from the perspective of a leader, whether that's a formal leader of a team or just you know, self-assigned leader of a group of people, one of the key things is to nurture a sense of belonging. And the reason it's so key is that when people feel that they belong, they will then choose to step up and to contribute more to that team, organization, whatever it is. So in a business context, if your team that's around you feels a sense of belonging, that they know how they can contribute, they know the reason you exist as an organization, they know what's deeply important to you and to the organization, they will step up. It becomes a catalyst for innovation. It becomes a catalyst for what we call discretionary effort, where people are choosing to do more than is a sign on their contract. But also it links to the question that you asked much earlier or point you made much earlier about um, people's willingness to step into a work environment where they want to stick around. They've got a longer-term view. Well, the key is nurturing that sense of belonging. And the way we nurture a sense of belonging is that we show that we care. And we show yeah. that we care yeah. through all the means that we've just described and more, whether it's your thing to, to write a card or whatever, or send a quick text or pick up the phone, whatever it is, giving people your time shows that you care. And when people sense you care, it nurtures that sense of belonging. Mm. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. So one of my favorite questions that we're about to get to is, is our wrap-up question, actually. And, uh, you know, I, I love staying in touch with my, my, my uh, guests, but if we were to be connecting, let's say, a year from now, and I'm asking you to share all of your successes, what are we going to be toasting to? So what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Um, what I'm working on at the moment, we, we've got the book lean from the jump seat and, you know, I'm giving keynotes both virtually and in person uh, and workshops too, but you know what? It's limited because there's only one of me. So I need to put what I've written about in the book into practice again, which is I need to get out my own way. So what we're doing is developing uh, a course, which um, other facilitators should they choose, could, to, could deliver it. It will consist of um, workbooks, companion guides, facilitators' guides, and lots of videos from me setting up uh, exercises for people to do, uh, inquiries to, uh, to explore. Uh, there'll be case studies. We'll be drawing on the space program, on the uh, Apollo series of missions, all sorts of things uh, to illuminate the ideas that I share in the book and help people to put them in, into practice. So that's what we're working on at the moment. That's exciting. So, uh, yeah, if we spoke again in a, a year's time, that will be rocking and rolling. Absolutely. I can't wait to celebrate that with you and all your other successes. So, Peter, how can people find you and follow your work? Well, the easiest way these days is obviously through the internet. Leadingfromthejumpseat.com is my website. There's lots of uh, resources on there. Uh, videos, ideas, etc. 
you can find me on social media at Peter Docker on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram. And uh, um, yeah, that's, uh, and there's contact details on the website too, if you want to ask me questions or hook in directly. And the book Lean from the Jump Seat, it's available worldwide, paperback, hardcover, audiobook, and ebook. So uh, you should be able to get your hands on a copy. We'll have all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Peter, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been an absolute delight, Robbie, and thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 281. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.